Uh, this week, I really needed to hear what Romans 6 had to say. And I think perhaps you do as well. Here's how my week went. Uh, someone hurts me and I'm tempted to get angry or to look for revenge. Or perhaps I'm tempted to feel sorry for myself and about how I don't deserve to be treated like that. Or I'm tempted to take it out instead on people I love. Or things don't go the way I'd like and I get frustrated and I'm tempted to lose my temper. I'm running late for a meeting, I'm impatient, the old man wearing the hat is driving under the speed limit in front of me, how inconsiderate, and I get annoyed. I walk past the homeless guys drinking on the park bench, I could help, I could build a bridge, but who knows what inconvenient things that might start. And so I walk past. I could spend time with God in prayer and Bible reading, which is what I need, or I could indulge myself and just watch Netflix, so I take the easy option, because I deserve it, and at least I do more than some people. As I think back over the past week, there's been countless decisions I've made, uh, decisions where it's obvious what the Christian response is, what the right response is but decisions where, at least some of the time, I've deliberately chosen to do the opposite. And in the back of my mind, I've thought, does it really matter if I do the wrong thing and don't do the right thing? Can't I just take the easy option, the self-centred option? And in the back of my mind, does a little sin really make that much difference? After all, I'm saved by grace. My salvation doesn't depend on my works. I can't earn it. So why not just give in a little bit and then ask for forgiveness? Tomorrow's another day. God still loves me. His grace is free. That's how my week's been. So I really need to hear what God has to say in Romans 6. And I think perhaps you do too. Because Romans 6 is answering this very question, why not just sin a bit more and then get forgiven? Chapters 3 to 5 have been describing how you can't earn your salvation, how you can never do enough good things for God to declare you justified, and that the only way you can do it is if God does it, freely, by his grace, because of the work of Jesus. And chapter 5 concludes, no matter how much sin there was, no matter how far sin spread, no matter how deep the stain, there's more than enough grace to cover it. There is no such thing as too much sin for grace to deal with. It's a wonderful truth. But it begs the question Paul starts with at the start of chapter 6. It's the question I need to hear the answer to. Well, if that's true, why not just sin more to get more grace? Do you see it there in verse 1? What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? If grace is free, why not just take as much as you can? In some ways it seems like the obvious question because grace seems to offer more opportunity. Those lollies on the counter at the bank, they're free. Why not just fill your pockets? The toiletries in the hotel room are complimentary. Why not just fill up your bag? But Paul gives the strong answer to that question. Why not just go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. No way. 
And then he goes on to describe what happens when someone becomes a Christian. Verse 2, he says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We died to sin. Now, it's a description. It's not a command. It's a statement of fact. If you are a Christian, the realm of sin is what you used to live in. That used to be your address. But now you've become a Christian, you're dead to that. You've changed your address. It's a question for the history books. That was from the Dark Ages, from BC, before Christ. To ask that question, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound, that's a question for what you used to be. To actually entertain the idea to want to sin more, that's not what you do when you're dead to sin. But what does it mean that we died to sin? Is it just like a mental switch? Like the the shamed family who say to their wayward son, you're dead to us. Don't bother coming, we've changed the locks. It's not like that, is it? Is it like a mental switch? Or, Or maybe like wishful thinking? We just imagine sin to be powerless but it's completely unrealistic, like wishing it was sunny today. If you wish hard enough, it'll work. But that's not what it's like either, to to be dead to sin. Well, as Paul uses an argument for what it means to be dead to sin, he, he seems to be giving the Roman Christians a whole lot more credit than perhaps we deserve today because he introduces this idea of Jesus is our representative and it seems to be obvious as he's describing it and he seems to think the Roman Christians know exactly what he's going on about but for us we've got to work pretty hard to catch up. But it's this idea of Jesus being our representative. Uh, The Men's Cricket World Cup is on in England at the moment. Last night we beat Sri Lanka, it was pretty good. The Women's World Cup soccer is on in France and We beat Brazil, first time in a World Cup. We've done that. Uh, We've sent teams of Australian representatives. And so Australia is going to take on a whole range of different countries on the cricket ground, on the soccer field. But actually, did you notice what I did as I said that? It won't really be Australia versus Sri Lanka on a cricket field. That would be a very large field as well as a very confusing game, wouldn't it? If the whole population of Australia played the whole population of Sri Lanka. No, we say Australia plays Sri Lanka, but what we really mean is representatives of Australia play against representatives of Sri Lanka. Uh, In a sense, they play for us. They play on our behalf. And so what it means is I can say we play Sri Lanka. Or we beat Brazil. Our representatives won. And so we won also. And that's the point Paul is making in verse 3. We died to sin because our representative, Jesus, died to sin. Just jump down to verse 10 for a moment. That's where we can see what Jesus did most clearly. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. He died as punishment for sin committed. Except he'd never sinned. He didn't deserve to die for sin. 
So how does the death of Jesus affect us? Well, it's this idea that if we are a Christian, then Jesus acts as our representative. So there in verse 3, Paul says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? When you became a Christian, when you trusted Jesus, God connected you to Jesus. He spiritually joined himself, he joined Jesus, joined Jesus' spirit to your spirit. Why does Paul mention baptism? Not because there's some big theology of baptism going on. I think probably just baptism was a a visible sign of that process of you being, becoming a Christian, trusting Jesus, being joined to him. Jesus became your representative and his death became your death. His sinless shoulders can bear the weight of the world's sin and so he can stand in your place. There's a sense in which you died. You died for your own sin because Jesus, your representative, died. And then God joined you to him. There's a sense in which you are a dead man or woman walking because Jesus, your representative, died. And so that means, according to verse 2, it doesn't make sense for you to live in sin any longer. It doesn't make sense for you to cherish sin or look for opportunities to wallow in sin or to make excuses to go on sinning because you're dead. Sin only holds power over someone who's alive. When you died, you checked out of the kingdom of sin. And now sin has no claim on you. It has no power over you. That's what verse 6 says. Have a look at verse 6. For we know that our old self or our old man, our old nature, was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. When we died in Jesus, we were freed from sin. Sin has no claim on you, on a dead person. It's like the story of the Count of Monte Cristo. I don't know whether you've ever seen the movie or read the book. Uh, Edmund Dantes is imprisoned. Uh, Long story, he's imprisoned. Life sentence. Uh, The only way he can escape is death. And that's actually what he does, because... You can only get out of that prison if you die. Your prison sentence is cancelled when a prisoner dies. Prison no longer has any hold over a dead man. And in a sense, that's what happens to Dante's. He takes the place of a dead man in the burial sack. The burial sack is stitched up and dumped into the sea. He cuts his way out. He swims to freedom. The prison has no hold over a dead man and the sentence is cancelled and the dead man is set free. And that's sort of what happens with us and the power sin holds over us. Sin has no power over a dead man. Uh, We've escaped. We're free. We're no longer under its power or its hold because Jesus, our representative, died for us. We paid our own penalty. We paid the penalty for our sin because our representative paid for us. 
and so sin has no claim on us. Remember, this is all in answer to Paul's question why you shouldn't go on sinning if you're a Christian or why you shouldn't be asking the question about sinning more. But that's not the end. Uh, That describes what happens to the Christian from the negative, what we're not, what happened in the past. Uh, But look at how verse 4 continues what we are now. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Death wasn't the end for Jesus. He was raised to life. And that means that we too have been raised to new life because, as Paul describes it, because we're in Jesus. When our representative wins, we win as well. When our representative is raised, we are raised as well for all who have faith in Jesus. And what it means is that our present life should have the flavour of Jesus' resurrection life. Our life should have the flavour of sin being defeated more and more. That's in the present. But it's not only in the present. There's a future resurrection for us as well. Verse 5 Uh, Once again, it comes because we're joined to Jesus. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. The idea is repeated down in verse 8. We can be confident about our future resurrection, not because of ourselves, but because we're joined to Jesus who was resurrected. Uh, We are in him. Verse 8 says it. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. And then Paul continues describing the sort of life that Jesus lives now. Because he was raised, Jesus' life now is is victorious and sin-defeating and death-defeating and focused on God. Uh, That's verse 9. Have a look at it. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Those are all wonderful truths describing Jesus himself. But then Paul says in verse 11 how all of that life of Jesus connects to us. In the same way. In other words, look at Jesus, the life he lives. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, judge yourself, consider yourself, reckon yourself dead to sin. We're to think about ourselves that way because of the reality of Jesus' life and because we are in him. He's the one who's in heaven. He's the one who is victorious. He's the one whose life is focused on God. And because we are in him, we are to consider ourselves like that. We are to count ourselves dead to sin. But what does that mean? What does it mean to count ourselves or to consider ourselves or reckon ourselves dead to sin? Well, it's not like positive, the power of positive thinking. It's not just vision yourself, just imagine a future where you're sinless and, and just power there and get there. That's not what he's talking about. It's not squeezing your eyes together really tight and if you just believe enough you'll get there. 
Uh, no, it's about recognising what in reality is true. The historical event of Christ's death spelt the end of sin's power. The historical event of your baptism joined, marked your joining to Christ. Uh, so the truth is you are, you are actually in him. And so death to sin and life to God are actually realities for you. What it means is you need to recognise those things. You need to line up your thinking with what is actually objectively true. The problem is not in the, the truth, the problem is in your thinking about what's true. Subjectively, subjectively believe to be true what is objectively true. That's what it means to count yourself dead to sin. Get your mind around the fact that you are dead to sin. Now, it's interesting, it's only at this point, 12 verses in, that we finally get an ethical command. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Now up to this point, first 11 verses, the focus has been on getting your thinking right. There's been 11 verses of explanation before he finally gets to exhortation. 11 verses of indicative before the imperative. If you're not sure what that is, ask Janet afterwards. She's a Greek lecturer. She'll be able to tell you all about it. Because, to, you see, Paul says, focus on your thinking first because if he just tells us to stop sinning, it doesn't work. That's the school teacher strategy. Just stop doing it. No, Paul knows that the power to act a certain way begins with your mind. It, it comes by recognising your status. Reckon yourself dead to sin because you are in Christ. Christ who was raised to new life. Reckon it and then don't let sin reign in your bodies of death. Here's an example, an illustration. It's like those of us who are married. Perhaps you see somebody who catches your eye. You're attracted to them. It's not impossible for a married person to chase after someone else. It happens, happens all the time. But it's actually against the nature of marriage. You are someone who's committed to one other person. You're joined to your husband or wife. And so the trick when you're tempted is to look down at your wedding ring and count yourself married. Reckon yourself. That's not imagining you're married when you're not. It's... it's getting your mind around the reality of what's true. No, I'm married. I promised myself in front of friends and family, death do you part. Consider yourself married and then act accordingly and walk away. Poke out your eye, cut off your hand. And it's the same with your Christian connection. Paul says, reckon yourself dead to sin. You are married to Christ. You've made the mental, so make that mental switch when you're tempted. Acknowledge who you are and then act accordingly. And I wonder if that's why Paul mentions baptism. You were baptised into Christ. Because that was a memorable event. When it comes to reckoning yourself dead to sin, how do you get your mind back there? Well, you think about your baptism. If you can remember it, or at least other baptisms you've symbolised, Perhaps you see a little baby up there. That was me. I was that little baby. 
when you're tempted to sin and the, and the connection between you and Jesus seems a little fuzzy, remember back to your baptism. Remember how everyone in church was watching. Remember hearing the promises that were made, the public declaration, the promises made of what God was going to do for someone who trusted. Remember back to that visible sign of what God was doing on the inside. It's a solid fact. Remember it, consider who you are, and then act accordingly. Martin Luther has a famous quote, When you're tempted, remember your baptism. Here's some of what he says in his larger catechism. Thus we must regard baptism and make it profitable to ourselves. Regard baptism, think about it, reckon yourself a baptised person. Why? That when our sins and conscience oppress us, we strengthen ourselves and take comfort and say, nevertheless, I am baptised. But if I am baptised, it is promised me that I shall be saved and have eternal life. And this was a man that had debilitating depression. But he was able to say, I feel something, but that's not true. I, what's, what I feel is not true. It's what I know, what I'm reckoning as true. And then I will act accordingly. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You are connected to Jesus and so you died. You died to sin. And it's only when you've done that, get the mind right, the, the outcome will be to live for God. Verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Let's follow along with me. Verse 13, Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Now, if you've been a Christian for a few years, moving into decades, as many of you have, that, that whole paragraph may not sound quite as revolutionary as it should, quite as life-changing as it is. But you find someone that hasn't been a Christian for very long and you ask them, what's different about your life now to compared to BC? And there's change. It's exciting. They really have put to death the sinful nature and they actually get excited by things now that they used to be bored with and vice versa. Things that used to have power over them are powerless. Attitudes and thought processes start to change because they've started a whole new life. It's kind of, ever, it's kind of sad that we ever got used to uh, that we got used to this new life God demands of us and maybe started dropping our standards and lowering our expectations of how we should behave. So don't offer the parts of your body to sin, but instead offer them to God who's brought you from death to life. Think of a way you can do that today, that you can put the parts of your body, your time, your energy, your talents, your emotions your brain, your muscles, your wallet, your kitchen, your computer, your pen, your phone, whatever that part of your life, how can you put that to work as an instrument of righteousness? 
How can that fit the new you that's alive in Christ and dead to sin? The reality is you've been brought from death to life, so live like it in every area of life. You see, it's all about serving a new master. You've transferred your allegiance. You're part of a new army. You answer a new commander. You're under new management. It's no longer sin you serve, but... Now, in verse 14, he introduces the idea of grace. Verse 14, sin shall not be your master. You're not under law, but under grace. And we might think, oh, that sounds right. Grace doesn't sound like a very hard task, master. Grace sounds like she won't even notice if we don't bother turning up to work. But what incentive is there to do the right thing if grace is in charge rather than sin? When I first started teaching, uh, my head of department gave me this advice, don't smile until Easter. Don't smile until Easter. And the point was, don't try to be the student's friend be their teacher. If they think they can get away with anything, they will. Don't give them the chance. Let them know who's boss. You know, all of that summarised in four words, don't smile until Easter. And as Paul writes verse 14, he can imagine that same sort of doubt in his readers. Okay, grace is the boss. Well then what's to stop people taking advantage of grace, of Mr Nice Guy? Can you see the question there in verse 15? What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? It's like the principal's left the room, it's only that substitute teacher. Great, we can go to town. It's almost the same question as back up in verse 1. And Paul gives us exactly the same answer. By no means, no way, shall we sin just because you're under grace. And this time he explains it using this idea of You're under new management. Uh, Verse 17, Thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obey the form of teaching to which you're entrusted. You've been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. There's a new owner. A new broom has swept through. Things are different. Whenever you see that big advertising sign on a restaurant or a business under new management, you expect things to change. A new improved way of doing things, better service, a new menu, new decor. Well, the new owners come in and they say, that's not the way we do things now. There's new priorities. And that's Paul's point down in verse 19. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. There's a completely different set of KPIs. Your key performance indicators are no longer about ever-increasing wickedness, but about holiness. Productivity has changed from building up wickedness to building up holiness. Or in verse 21, there's a new outcomes-based reporting mechanism. What benefit did you reap from the things you're now ashamed of? These things result in death. What's the outcome that you used to achieve? Death. What's the new outcome-based reporting? Verse 22. 
But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. You're under new management with new priorities, new ways of doing things, new goals, new outcomes. So to even ask the question about whether we can sin because we're under grace, that's a question from the old regime, from the old management, from the old boss. If you're going to think like that, then you may as well hand your notice in. If you're part of the new regime, offer yourselves as a slave to righteousness, to obedience, to grace. Get on board with the new management. And if you do, it leads to holiness and righteousness and life. Because we're connected to Jesus, he's our representative We're dead to sin. There's no power for sin over us. And because that is true, we're to count ourselves as dead to sin. To believe it and then to live that out. To offer ourselves as slaves to righteousness. As people who are under new management. That's the lesson I need to hear this week. And I think you probably need to hear it too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see, to know uh, who we are in you, in Jesus, uh, to believe it, to, to reckon it, to reckon ourselves as dead to sin. Uh, help us to see who uh, we are, the life we are to live because of Jesus and then Help us to live that out. We thank you for your spirit who empowers us and gives us the heart and the will to do it and the power. And we pray that we might do that for his honour and glory. Amen.